Going back to what we were saying before, I mean, food is really important. And appreciation of food and taking time over food is something which we're in danger of losing. I, I don't know whether you've come across the slow food movement. Uh, started, in, you know, it started in Italy. Well, you know, of course. Uh, Carlo Petrini was the person who, who founded it as a protest against the arrival of the first McDonald's <laughs> in, 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 in Rome back in the 1970s. And, uh, you know, he, he became, it's, it emphasises the, the importance of spending time or paying attention to the growing of food, to the preparation of food, the cooking of food, and then the sharing of food. And uh, it's actually spawned a whole movement around the world, which isn't just about food, it's about paying attention, about slowing down. And I mean, I know it's easy for me, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of way beyond retirement, past my sell-by date, and, and uh, you know, and, and, I, and I, I look over to Canary Wharf, I mean, you can see it from the house where I live, and it's just down the road here. And people are frantic, sort of, you know, and the energy and the effort people need to do and the speed at which people have to travel and engage mm. in all that's going on there and all, all, of course, all, all around London. So it's not just sort of being tutting about people not having time, but I think it's just making time for the basic things of food and uh, relationship is... Is, 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 is ecology. It's good ecology. It's wise ecology. And it starts with things like that. It starts with things like that. Slowing down, taking time, paying attention, contemplare. Someone said to me on the way into lunch, and you're here somewhere, but I can't remember who you are or who you are, but you said to, said to me about um, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures, the land is always, the land is never owned by the people. It is always gift. And it's conditional gift. It's conditional upon right relationships, upon justice to the orphan, the widow, the stranger. It's conditional upon recognizing that it is gift and receiving it as gift, that it's their own trust. And that runs through the Hebrew scriptures. <clears throat> it's right from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, in the second creation story, you'll remember that Adam is given the responsibility to till and keep the soil, as it says in my translation of the NRSV. To till and keep the soil. And they're very interesting, those words, the Hebrew words behind that, Arad and Shamar, are... Uh, it means to, to, to till is to serve. And elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures it is to serve. To serve the earth. And to keep. It's the same word as <coughs> to keeping the commandments. Obeying. Preserving. Observing. And so the human person in, in, in Genesis is, is told to serve and observe pay attention to, pay respect to, 
to be obedient to the soil. Wendell Berry, the great agrarian writer um, in, the, in, in America, he says, you know, our, our whole civilization depends upon our relationship with the top six inches of soil which lay on the face of the earth. And if you lose that, we're sunk. And any good farmer will know that. And yet what we're seeing around the world is a, is a, is a steady degradation of the, of the topsoil, the loss of the topsoil, which cannot be replenished by just piling in chemicals, um, uh, carbon-based carbon chemicals. It will not be replaced. It's, the structure of the soil needs to be preserved, cared for, uh, loved even. Um, the, the, the passage in, uh, in Jeremiah and in Isaiah which, where, where the prophets are saying that the, that relationship has broken down, the relationship between of justice in the land has broken down. And he, in this passage here, he says, I looked on the waste and lo it looked on the earth and lo it was waste and void, and to the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains and lo they were quaking, and the hills were moved to and fro. I looked and lo there was no one at all, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked and lo, the fruitful land was a desert and its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. And you know, that actually, if you read it through, it's the undoing of creation. It's the undoing of Genesis chapter 1. Um, What's the reference? What's the reference? Jeremiah 23, verses 27 to 20, 23 to 27. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 to 27. And the similar thing is actually in Isaiah chapter. <laughs> chapter twenty. Um, uh, chapter twenty-four, verse, 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 verse four. In which, which book? Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah twenty-four. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish together. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants. Media. <laughs> So, again, it's about this attention. How we, how we are, as how we, are, how we relate to the earth, the land, the creation, is mirrored by how we are with each other. Um, actually, if you exploit the soil, the land, you tend to exploit people too. Natural sources, human resources, who for? Um, or putting rather starkly, ecocide and genocide are closely related. Uh, the relationships between we 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 are utterly interdependent. People with the land, every creature, and there's an urgency in paying attention to that. Okay, can we move on to the next, um, to, the, to the, the, the fourth and fifth stanzas of this, of, of Francis's creatures? Because we then move on to something a bit different. The, the attention is changed, shifts. Back to the, back to the, it's in your, on page uh, three. Your book. Praise be you, my Lord, 
through those who give pardon for your love and bear infirmity and tribulation. Blessed are those who endure in peace, for by you, most high, shall they be crowned. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> I said that, that, that Francis, um, Francis wrote the canticle at a time when he was ill and, 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 and frail and was going blind. Out of a, out following a period of quite deep depression towards the end of his life. And it, it, it wasn't just it wasn't just physical sickness uh, or something of outside which was troubling him. It was also the way he sensed that the order was going. That it was expanded so far, had expanded so fast that it was it was uh, uh, running out of his orbit. It was losing sight of his vision. Francis was not a good organiser. He was not, and Franciscans on the whole aren't good organisers. <laughs> Just it's not an our sort of not one of the things we we're, we're, we're I think one of our gifts. Um, you know, the Dominicans on the other hand, they're really good. You know, <laughs> uh, Dominicans are great, but, but Franciscans no. And you, you can show it in the rule. I mean, the rule is not so tight and clear and, as the Dominicans. Um, more an inspirational document. And Francis wrote an inspirational document under pressure, really a collection of his sayings over the years, quotations, lots of quotations from scripture. Because they said, you know, the order's going so much that you, you are, it, it's, it, you know, nobody knows where anyone is, and some certain scandals were arising. So you must, the church said, you must tie it down a bit. So he wrote this inspirational document and the church said, that's not a rule. No, no, that's no good. And they sort of lost it. And they sent him back to write another one. And he wrote a one which is a bit more clear cut, but even so, it's not what wouldn't sort of cut the mustard with a Dominican. Um, and, uh, but that sort of, it was, there was a struggle going on between him and the order. And he, he resigned from leadership of the order. He said, I can no longer. I can no longer be your, your minister. I must be subject to the other brothers myself because I can no longer go in the way that I see it's going. It was a quite a, a sad time for him when he saw it drifting, drifting and disputes arising within the order. Um, and yet the canticle was written out of this time. And these verses... This, this particular stanza was written right, at that time, but there was a particular context for it. One particular situation had arisen, which he wrote it for. And that was, he heard that the, the Bishop of Assisi, who was his friend, and the Podesta of Assisi, also, well, he was well acquainted with, the Mayor of Assisi, they were at loggerheads. Um, the Bishop of Assisi, Guido, Guido II, had a bit of a reputation for being litigious. He owned a quarter of the land around Assisi, and frankly, he wanted more. And he was taken to task by the papacy, the records show, you know, a number of times for, for pressing his case too far, even with other religious organisations. Um, and 
So he was quite an argumentative, litigious person, although a great supporter of Francis. And the mayor, well, he stood for the city authorities, this newly independent commune, and trying to win their, in they'd won their independence from the, from the, the landed aristocracy. <coughs> and they wanted, didn't want the church to dominate them either. And they were at loggerheads over rights and, and land and certain privileges in the city. And they were not speaking. There was, was, a, was a deadlock between them. Francis, um, by this time a sick man, from his sickbed, uh, he writes this extra stanza to his poem of Pentacle of the Creatures. Uh, Praise to you, my Lord, for those who give pardon for your love and bear infirmity and tribulation. Blessed are those who endure in peace, for by you, the Most High, shall they be crowned. <coughs> um, Francis had a, had a gift for making peace. He told his brothers wherever they went, they must greet people with a greeting, may the Lord give you peace. May the Lord give you peace. Strictly speaking, I should have started this, this with these words. The Lord give you peace. Um, command from the Lord. From the Gospel, it says, wherever you go, greet the people with peace. The brothers actually objected to start with. They said, people don't know what we mean when they say, the Lord give you peace. But he said, no, don't. It doesn't matter whether they understand it or not. That's, you must give that greeting of peace. And if you go to Assisi today, you'll see little plaques up on the houses which say either Paxet Bonum or Pace Bene. If you meet a Franciscan friar in Assisi, you say Pace Bene. And they'll say something there. Um, it, so, and, you know, he had, he had a reputation for bringing warring factions together. There wasn't this account of him in Bologna preaching, or an eyewitness account saying that he preached at very powerfully in the, in, the, in the central square in Bologna to almost the whole city and that many those who had been factions who had been at war with each other until that time made peace, reconciled to each other and slightly earlier than the writing of the canticle in 1219 Francis had gone to the Holy Land or to Egypt to join the crusading army there and on the Fifth Crusade, trying to recapture the holy places of Jerusalem. He went there, I mean, because he, he, he wanted to be a crusader himself as a young man, that was his ambition. But he goes there as a, as a, as a friar, unarmed, joins the crusader camp, is appalled by what he sees, predicts disaster for the army, um, which he sees really they were out, frankly, to, 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 to plunder the wealth of of Egypt as they had already plundered the wealth of Constantinople. They never got, the, the, the um, Third Crusade never got, or Fourth Crusade never got to um, the Holy Land. They just stayed off in Constantinople and, and, and plundered the city and then went back home again <coughs> with, with, the, with the booty. And then they wanted to do the same in Egypt. And he said, this is going to be a disaster. And instead, he crossed over the enemy lines unarmed with one brother, Brother Pacifico, and they went to seek to meet a meeting with the Sultan, the Sultan of Egypt, Malik al-Kamil, Muslim. Muslims were their terrible enemy, you know, they were the, they were the hated people <coughs> of the time. 
They were not considered human beings even. Bernard de Clairvaux said it's all right to kill Muslim women and children because they're not really human. Um, and so there's this great sort of antagonism and fear, whipped up, I might say, by some sections of the, of the church. And Francis goes there and seeks an audience with the Sultan. And Malik al-Kamil, the nephew of Saladin, was actually a wise, a wise man himself and a religious man himself, um, probably a Sufi and the Sufi tradition, the mystic tradition of Islam. <coughs> and he had the wisdom to receive Francis and allowed Francis to preach the gospel to him. Francis' aim was to convert the Sultan. He said, this is the way to, to win the Holy Land, is to just to make them all Christians, to, to, to convert them to Christ. And that's what he sought to do. And he failed, of course. He failed. Um, but what did happen was that there was a relationship built up in that time, over maybe two or three weeks that he was in the Sultan's camp. A relationship built of respect and trust grew up between them. Um, Francis discovered a brother. Discovered a brother. And had the wisdom and the humility and the insight not just to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Sultan, but also to be prepared to receive from the Sultan something. To receive brotherhood, sisterhood, and to receive something of the wisdom of Islam, the best of Islam. So he went eventually he comes back to Italy after maybe a year, a year and a half. He comes back and he tells the brothers that they must call the people to prayer three times a day. They must ring the church bells to summon people to pray. I wonder where he gets that from. <laughs> And then he writes for Brother Leo, his closest companion, he writes him a prayer entitled The Praises of God. And I've already quoted little bits of it. Uh, praising God for all God's attributes. It doesn't actually add up to the 99 Muslim names of God, but it's very much in the same style. Um, it's sort of repeating, repeating the attributes of God in praise of God. And then also, lastly, he, he, when he eventually writes his, um, his, his rule, his, his, his first rule, his inspirational document, he says that if, the brothers, if brothers feel called to go and live amongst the Saracens, the Muslims, he said they can, they can do it in this way. They, must, they can go and be subject to them. <coughs> and not engage in disputes, but to declare that they are Christians. There's no watering down of the faith, of his, of his deep commitment <coughs> to Christ, but the way to live and to make peace and to live peaceably is to be humble before each other, to learn from each other, not to write off the enemy, but recognize there's something, something to receive. And that's what I think that is encapsulated in this, in this, in this <coughs> verse, which he, he wrote 
for two brothers and told them to go and sing the verse to the mayor and the podesta. And the story goes that they, he did, they did go and sing it to, to the mayor and the podesta. And it brought the reconciliation between the two. It brought them to, to peace, to an understanding. Um, Francis had a peace within him, I think, because but had a, he was able to make peace because he had a peace within him, an inner peace, which was a reconciliation, a, an accepting of the accepting of, of, of his humility, his earthiness, uh, accepting that he was a limited person, that he didn't have all the answers, an exception, a recognition that he was a sinner, that he failed, He'd, not everything was right. Um, like us all. A, a recognition of that actually makes room for the other. And, you know, you can... It is the only way to make peace, actually. The only way to make peace is to accept that there is something to learn. I'm very conscious that, you know, today in Parliament, the two warring factions. Today, in the centre of London, there's a huge demonstration going on. There's a, there's, a, there's a real tension in our country, a real division in our country. Um, how are we to make peace, whatever the outcome? How are we to receive from the other? How, how are we to make room for the other? How are we to avoid scaring, scoring points off each other. Um, it, it, it's, at the heart of it is the acceptance, the acceptance of the difficult things and the dark things and the negative things of life. Accepting them as being part of us and perhaps even a necessary part of us. Um, Accepting his sight loss and his increasing pain and disability. Accepting the loss of his vision for the order. Accepting that even that is part of, of God's purpose and God's plan. Accepting that there's a that that what seems negative, what seems dark, what seems and the enemy, what seems um, uncomfortable and awkward and tragic, that that is actually part of life itself and is part of the giving praise to God. The acceptance is part of the giving praise to God from where we are. Because actually that's the experience of every single one of us. None of us has a perfect, unfractured, uncomplicated life. We're human beings, and our families are like that as well, and our communities are like that as well, and our country is like that, and our world is like that as well. Um, learning to be at peace with the, with, with the shadow side. The shadow side. And no more is it, no, no more clearly is that so, of course, in our, in our attitude towards death. And the next stanza 
he writes shortly before he, he dies. And he knows he's dying. He knows he's, di knows he's dying. <coughs> Praise be you, my Lord, through our sister bodily death, from whom no living person can escape. Woe to those who die in mortal sin. Blessed are those whose death, whom death will find in you your most holy will. The second death shall do them no harm. That last line is quite strange to us, um, because we don't have that sort of concept of, 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 of uh, sort of the, the, the image in comes from Revelation. There are two deaths, and there's the final, the final, um, the final death, the final destruction, where the devil and all his works are plunged into the sea of fire. Um, it's a bit. It, I, I find that quite quite a strange concept to come to terms with. But but basically, the idea that you know it, to die in peace, in peace with God, with each other, with the world, is really important. Um, and that it's it's a necessary part of life. And whatever age we die, it's a necessary part of life. Um, and again, that's that's again something our culture finds difficult to come to terms with, uh, because we're not good at talking about death. We're not actually good at preparing for death. We're very good at keeping it at arm's length. We're very good at at, at staving it off. Um, at uh, uh, and our whole sort of our whole. Increasingly, our health system is geared around keeping it at keeping it at a distance, um, putting off the day. Um, and I'm not. I'm not. That's not criticising. I mean, you know, it, of course, let's find work for ways to um, to alleviate some of the illnesses and the diseases and the things that go wrong. But but actually. Um, we need also to have a, a recognition that, that, that death is part of life. That death can also be a sister to us. Because it's actually from whom no one can flee. It's the one certain thing about all, we can say about all of us here, is that um, that, that, we, that is our destiny. That is our destiny. Um, to learn to live in the presence of the living one, as Francis did, the living one who continues to love us and to know us and to desire us and to draw us, whether or not our heart is beating, is, uh, I think, a real antidote to the, um, the anxiety and the fear and the um, pushing away of, of death um, under which people seem to live seem to live these days <coughs> woe to those who die in mortal sin says Francis um, woe to those who die in mortal sin what does that mean? Uh, woe to those who, who die having turned away from God and an ultimate turning away, an ultimate cutting oneself off from life. 
I, I, I think that the, that, that petition in the Lord's Prayer lead us not into temptation, what it's about. Mm. It's not so much a lead us not into having little tempting thoughts of this, that, or the other, which we all have, you know. Let's be real. Um, but actually, lead, lead us not into the final temptation to turn away from the source of life, from the utter giftedness of life, from the one who loves us and cares for us and desires us. Lead us not into that temptation, because woe to us, actually, if at the end we are faced with the living God and we say no thanks. Possible. God gives us that opportunity. He gives us free will. Francis wrote these words at the end of his life and he added these two stanzas onto his great canticle of the creatures. And I think it's important that we, we see them there because it, it prevents us from just getting, just getting caught up in our nature mysticism. I, I mean, I do think we have to be uh, nature mystics, led into our deep communion with, with the world around us and with each other. But it's also about our human relationships and about our relationships and our understanding of ourselves before God. We need to be in tune, in tune with these as well. If we're to live well, if we are to live fruitfully, if we are to know how much we are blessed. <coughs> 